This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Peter Josephson and Ward Holder um, to discuss their new book, Reinhold Niebuhr in Theory and Practice, Christian Realism and Democracy in America in the 21st Century. This book was recently published by Lexington Books, which is an imprint of Roman and Littlefield, and it came out in 2018. The book takes us through an understanding of Reinhold Niebuhr as an individual, as a theologian, as a thinker, as a philosopher, and as somebody involved in politics. But I'm going to let Peter and Ward talk to us a little bit about that. First, I'd like to welcome Peter Josephson and Ward Holder to the New Books Network. Thank you, Lily. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. I'm glad you could join me today, and I'm going to ask you each to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this particular project. This is Peter Josephson, and uh, I uh, am chair of the Department of Politics at St. Anselm College, where I teach political theory and political philosophy. Uh, and uh, the genesis of this particular project, um, from my point of view, at least, Ward may have a slightly different story, um, is a little bit peculiar. We we did a book seven years ago on uh, Reinhold Niebuhr and Barack Obama. Obama had identified Niebuhr as one of the thinkers who most influenced him. Uh, And uh, following that book, Ward was approached by a publisher in Italy about doing a translation. That uh, project fell through at the last minute, and then we were asked, would we do a new volume? And the question became, well, what would be different about the new volume. Uh, And then uh, along about that time, the 2016 election got underway. Uh, This would have been in about 2015. And it was clear that the world was very different and uh, uh, than it had been when we were writing our first book. And that there was something uh, missing from the conversation that a reflection on Niebuhr and his work would provide. So uh, in in broad terms, uh, that's where the current project uh, came from. There was um, 12 or so years ago, there was uh, a book by John Diggins called Why Niebuhr Now, which was uh, a very, very good read. Um, My father-in-law would say, you'll like it. It's not very long, Um, but it's a very, very interesting book. Uh, Why Niebuhr Now? And, uh, And in some sense, um, the answer to that question changes in 2016 and after 2016, um, not so much 
Why is Niebuhr popular? 2008 among uh, some politicians, but why do we especially need Niebuhr now? And and the question we followed with was, what would Niebuhr do or ask us to do as citizens in American politics now? Got it. Ward, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I'm uh, the director of the honors program here at St. Anselm and a professor in the theology department. And um, when Peter first approached me about teaching a course together, it was just a kind of general, let's do something on religion and politics. And that sounded great. But then uh, the first book that, that he described um, came along and that that seemed like too good an opportunity to pass up when uh editione unicopoli which is a uh, academic press in milan when they approached us and said well would you write a second book uh of course we had to ask why would we do that exactly Uh, and uh, other than, you know, we, we were both promoted, so didn't need it and and had the question, well, what what does this offer? Um, we thought we could make some further incisive comments. And then 2015 happened, uh, followed by 2016. And suddenly we were seeing a. A political sphere where religion was talked about almost every day with almost no understanding. Uh, There were just not the kind of discussions of the underlying theological or religious ideas that were part and parcel of, say, 2008. That, that were now being put forward, even as people were arguing so strenuously about the relationship of different religions and the whole American experiment. I would add just one other thing about the genesis of this particular book. When we, when we finished our previous work, we were left with a question, and it's a question that comes out in Niebuhr's work itself. Um, it's a question he raises in uh, a book called The Children of Light and the Children of Darkness. And it's, it's toward the end of a chapter on the relationship between private property and public policy. And, uh, and at the end of that chapter, he, he, uh, he says, you, you know, of course, none of the propositions that I'm making will help us solve any particular political problem, which, um, which struck us as odd. Um, because it, it seemed to establish such a chasm between Niebuhr's thought and actual political practice, and because um, in the in the popular mind as a public intellectual in the mid 1950s, Niebuhr was very well known for writing um, sometimes twice a week columns that uh, incorporated his thought into ways to address contemporary political issues. So, in some sense, he gives us this warning. None of my propositions will help solve particular 
political problems, but in another sense, he himself was engaged in the project of finding applications of his theory in practical political life. And so um, we were curious about uh, uh, if Niebuhr, I suppose this is extraordinarily presumptuous, but if Niebuhr were here today, uh, what would he write about American politics in, let's say, 2018? Um, how would his uh, political theology guide political practice today? And that's where I wanted to take you next in terms of his political theology. You you do something very interesting in this book in terms of you have a very brief introduction and then you dive into a sort of biographical outline of who Reinhold Niebuhr was and and to to some degree not only his understanding of himself in a sort of Christian context given his family and sort of training, but also who he is in terms of starting to position himself within the political sphere. Can you talk a little bit about why you started the book with this kind of biographical sketch? Um, we thought that was crucially necessary for this project. Um, if if you start to read not Niebuhr himself, but rather about Niebuhr in America in the 21st century, you start to recognize fairly quickly that there are a variety of Niebuhrs out there uh, in the wild, so, so to speak. There are liberal Niebuhrs. There are uh, conservative Niebuhrs, there are neocon Niebuhrs, and really everything in between. Uh, Niebuhr was a personal friend of Will Herberg, who always argued that Niebuhr was far more conservative than his politics showed. Um, what that means in practical terms, I can't actually imagine. Um, but we thought and and still believe uh, that that looking at his life, putting that kind of thick context behind his thought uh, was a crucial way of setting the table and saying not only who he was, but how he came to the positions he took and what he believed they meant in the world in which he was living. That kind of historical contextualization uh, we find far too frequently is missing from uh, Niebuhrian studies. And uh, it's, it's one of the values we think that the that the book brings to readers. I, I would just add to that. Uh, in, in my other works, I, I pay scant attention to biographies. Um, and sometimes that's been a criticism. But in this work, it seemed especially um, appropriate to pay attention to the biography because much of what Niebuhr tries to explain about uh, how political thinking develops and how uh, ideologies develop is 
uh, is to explain that each of us as human beings is living and working in a particular context and that 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 context um, without being deterministic because he's not, but that that context really does shape our outlooks and perspectives and limits those perspectives. So Niebuhr's own account of how political theorists think about politics always embeds them in uh, eras or times. And so it seemed appropriate also to look at him in that way. It, it seems to be part of his own self-explanation of his work. And and so the, the next question that comes out of that is that he does, you know, position himself and he is an individual who is coming through a theological and Christian perspective. Um, but we are thinking about him more broadly in certain sense as a political theorist um, and obviously not the first one to come from that kind of a perspective. But I would love for you each to sort of talk about how we should think about Niebuhr in regard to his positioning, not only in the 21st century, but also in this understanding of him as a political thinker. So bouncing from his biography, which set out the the parameters of his life. And, and this is an overused metaphor, but he's, he's a little bit of a Forrest Gump of the 20th century. He, uh, you know, he wrote about and was criticized by Henry Ford. He was involved in race commissions. He was in Detroit as Detroit took over the world. He was, uh, for his denomination, he was the war secretary uh, visiting all the, the soldiers' camps in what was called the Great War. He, uh, he was a pacifist. He became a supporter of limited and then rather unlimited intervention. He, he lived through all parts of the, um, the Second World War. And, and then uh, it's, it's aftermath of thinking about what does it mean to be a nuclear power? And then uh, he dies while Vietnam is going on. Uh, so, so that was that, that, Biography was crucial, but what also needs to be mentioned is how his, and we, we list a number of pillars of his political theological thought that, that come out of that, that, that put a certain kind of stamp or flavor or uh, or set of boundaries on politics. Uh, one is he, the way he thinks about human nature. Uh, if if there were one book that people read of Niebuhr's, or, or at least bought, 
It was um, uh, The Nature and Destiny of Man, uh, which was published in two volumes. These were the Gifford Lectures. They were huge, but they also are, you know, it's, it's a very pessimistic view of, of human nature and thus political structures have to be created to, uh, well, created to hem in the worst instinct of human nature, especially human nature uh, when it is working in uh, group mentality. Um, he, he looks at the fact that in, in the modern world, his modern world, although it would sometimes seem that he is writing not last century, but last week, um, because he says we've lost a sense of that we have the easy conscience. We, we have a sense that everything's fine and anything that's not fine will get right next week. Uh, because technology and the train of history is simply all working in the right direction. And, and Niebuhr doesn't believe that at all. And, and instead says, because that's a lie, political structures have to be put together in certain ways to stop some of the worst injustices. We will not achieve what he might have called, coming out of his uh, social gospel days, the kingdom of God. We will not achieve the kingdom of God on earth, but we can make some proximate steps toward greater justice. The, um, the question is an interesting one also because uh, Niebuhr's work is, much of it, Probably most of it, certainly the most popular pieces of his work, are um, entirely accessible to those who uh, either are not Christians or who don't share in um, in Eber's own uh, theology. Um, very famously, you know, Arthur Schlesinger, uh, back in the 1950s, pointed to uh, Niebuhr as as a guide for thinking about American foreign policy and and um, jokingly founded a group called Atheists for Niebuhr. And, uh, and so that's entirely possible. And I think Niebuhr would, would say that he wants to be able to speak to people from outside his own theological perspective, people who are themselves outside his own theological perspective. And yet he is writing from, from that Christian theological perspective. Um, in some sense, the irony of American history, which was published in the early 1950s, is his least overtly theological book um, and is often read without a theological context at all. But uh, the more we read it, the more we saw it as um, deeply imbued with Niebuhr's theological approach to thinking about politics and about history and human place in history, our limited perspective on where uh, where history is is taking us, um, and that that as Ward suggested, that Christian perspective leads Niebuhr to a critique um, 
in, in some sense, not only of America, but of modernity itself, that um, we have come to have a kind of faith in progress, and that progress will come about either through the invisible hand of a free market, which solves all problems without um, uh, compromising individual liberty, or it will come about through a kind of social science administrative state that has developed enough wisdom to resolve our problems so that human beings can live happily together. And uh, Nieper is, is aware that there are uh, tremendous advantages, both practical and ethical advantages, to um, living in a market economy and considerable drawbacks and ethical challenges living in a market economy, and that there are considerable advantages to having a government that actually plays a role in economic life, and at the same time that there are uh, considerable difficulties or challenges with having a government that plays a role in that life. But all of that, all of that political economic thinking comes in the context of his theological point of view. And this is a lot of the thrust of, of chapter three, where you discuss Niebuhr on economics, government, and social justice. Um, but I wanted to sort of bring you possibly backwards to chapter two, which you've touched on a bit in terms of the political theological foundations of his thinking. Can you explore just a little bit more of how, you know, Ward talked about his particular biography and how it shaped him and the the chapter in the book talks about this as well. But again, this goes to the question of that you posed initially of why Niebuhr now? Um, what is in particular of use and import for our our current today's conversation and political experience that his sort of political theological thinking helps us to understand and possibly address? Well, I, I, uh, the first thing I think, and the and, um, first thing we address uh, directly is uh, what we refer to as his anthropology. In other words, his account of uh, uh, not only of human nature, but uh, to a degree of human development. Um, and, uh, and the the theologically that points ultimately to a problem of um, pride, the original sin of pride. Niebuhr said that that um, the original sin of pride was uh, the only part of Christian doctrine that could be proved empirically, um, and it is that that fundamental sin, that uh, pride, that human beings tend to bring both to their private lives, but also to their public lives, uh, that undergirds much of his understanding, it's an understanding in part derived, he would tell us from St. Augustine's works, um, of, the, of the problem of political action, that we have um, an impulse toward justice, but we make the mistake of believing that we know what that is and how we might accomplish it. Where his own uh, 
urging to us is to is to be a little more chastened, a little uh, to exercise a, a bit greater humility about who we actually are, um, uh, how much we might actually know, and how much power we might actually have to accomplish justice on Earth. In the second chapter, we identified five foundations or pillars or central doctrines that that Niebuhr had um, had written that would impact any kind of political situation. And, and I want to be clear, we weren't being very original here. You could read basically anyone's book on Reinhold Niebuhr, and they would say things like this. We, we identified uh, anthropology, human societies and justice, faith and history, and in the easy conscience and Christian responsibility in the world. Those are coming out, but you say, why Niebuhr now? Because these things matter now and are of the utmost importance. When, when Democrats and Republicans are arguing about what should happen at the border, when our president is asking for another four and a half billion dollars for border security. In part, what is being asked is what is just? What shall we do with those people who show up at our borders with empty hands and empty bellies and are saying, won't you help me? What is just? And and we need we need to be thinking about that. Uh, sin and the easy conscience. How many times uh, over the past two or three years have we said, well, now we've crossed a new Rubicon. This this thing which is now being done has never been done. Uh, and quite bluntly, as a theologian, I have to say, no one is saying, I apologize for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. The great majority of actors are saying, I have no problem with what I am doing. Uh, you, you can talk about that in the political sphere. You can talk about it in the legal sphere. Um, uh, I live outside Boston, and in a Boston courtroom this week, there were parents who spent millions of dollars to get their children into various schools to which they could not have been admitted. And they said, but I love them. Isn't it right to do whatever I can? And since I have this money, Am I not free to spend it in any way I wish? Sin and the easy conscience. It's right there. And we have lost, as a society, we have lost the ability to talk about this with any kind of sophistication. And because of that, whenever anyone does bring it up, this becomes a naked grab for power rather than 
a discussion of that which is right and wrong. That's why, that, that's just a couple of examples. We think there are, all of these are important, and I'll, I'll vamp on just one more. Um, it says, our last one was Christian responsibility in the world. Um, well, it turns out that the young man who was the shooter in uh, the San Diego synagogue um, is a devoted member of a uh, Orthodox Presbyterian church. His father is an elder. His mother and family attend regularly. Uh, but this is a this is a denomination, an evangelical Presbyterian denomination, that says social justice is not what the scripture is about. We are not supposed to be engaging in the world. That is something that happens outside of our faith. Niebuhr says quite the opposite, that that to have faith demands, demands the engagement with the society in which the Lord your God has placed you. If I could just, um, this, this idea of Christian responsibility is, uh, is central to Niebuhr and it involves, uh, uh, a perplexity or paradox that he is perfectly well aware of. Um, and, uh, and it also helps explain a, a fundamental truth that he sees in political life. Um, there is a there is a, a question, uh, a debate among uh, some Christian theologians about what what Christianity requires of the believer in terms of engagement with public life, and uh, Niebuhr argued that Christians, he would say not only Christians, but um, speaking in the Christian context, that um, that Christians had a responsibility to engage with public life. And that that it would actually be uh, a sin of the easy conscience if they were to say uh, public life is messy. I am concerned with the salvation of my soul, and therefore I cannot engage in public life. That it would be too compromising of my immortal soul to do that. Niebuhr's teaching is um, yes, but you have to do it anyway. Uh, it, it is. Of course, you are, uh, to use the colloquialism, your hands will get dirty. Political life, public life is inherently dirty. But you, it is unethical to preserve one's own purity at the expense of uh, the injustices, permitting the injustices of society to go unaddressed. And even as we go about to address those injustices, even as we believe we are doing God's work on earth, we need to recognize that we are dirtying our hands, that the, the work we do when we engage in acts of justice is never purely acts of justice. And, and we have to, in a way, um, uh, reconcile ourselves to that, uh, to that basic fact. Any solution, temporary solution we come up with to a problem is going to be imperfect and will embroil us in our own acts of injustice. 
but we aren't free to withdraw. We aren't um, entitled to withdraw from the responsibility to act in the world. I um, recently, uh, uh, my attention was drawn to an interview that Niebuhr did um, sh very shortly after the uh, church bombings in, in Birmingham. And it was an interview with James Baldwin. Uh, and they are, they are discussing precisely this problem. And, um, and Baldwin makes the comment that, uh, uh, what, what America needs is to develop a policy of love. And Niebuhr, um, uh, the, the two men were so respectful of one another and, and yet at the same time, or maybe because of their respect for one another, were very clear about where they differed. Niebuhr said, no, 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 it's not love, it's justice. Love is the highest capacity that individuals have in their relations with one another. But love is not what societies do. The morality of the individual, which for Niebuhr is oriented around a principle of love, is uh, is bound to be different from the moral principles that must govern societies, which in their best instance would be oriented around a principle of justice. And and, and Niebuhr says the reason for that is that um, we need to understand that societies are these tenuous communities that are held together uh, in ways that are not entirely rational. Um, they are they are held together by uh, conventions and traditions and beliefs and opinions, which may not be true, um, and by responsibilities that are different from the responsibilities that individuals have. So, as an individual, um, to take you know a sort of very simple example, if if I were to say I'm going to live a life of charity and give away all that I have, well, as an individual, I can do that and and. My wife would have something she would, might want to say about that, and my children might have something to say about that. But if I were to do that, um, it doesn't involve the fortunes of very many other people. But if a political community were to say, we're going to adopt that principle of charity too, uh, and, and we as a community will give over all that we have to some other community that is less well off, well, we can immediately see that as a political proposition, that's not going to work. And, and it isn't just going to work because people will object to where their tax dollars are being spent. It isn't going to work because in some sense, the community has a responsibility to itself first or to its members in a way that the individual's response, chief responsibility is to others. So the moral standard for the individual and the moral standard for the political community are a little bit different. Um, and that's in a way why uh, the role of the Christian in public life is especially complicated. Um, the Christian is to be moved especially by a kind of sacrificial love to act in the political community, and the political community is not governed by sacrificial love. Uh, and, in, and that probably contributes to this problem of the sacrifice of purity for the sake of justice. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And so I, I wanted to follow up on that, which also you both touched on earlier in terms of Niebuhr's biography as well, his pacifism and his engagement also with American, <clears throat> excuse me, intervention. And the paradox, as you talk about, um, of sort of doing potentially two things um, of Christian responsibility. Can you speak to a little bit of your understanding and Niebuhr's sort of thinking with regard to American foreign policy, American intervention? As you note in his biography, he, you know, lived through both world wars and onto into U.S. involvement in Southeast Asia. Um, he saw and understood a lot of what was going on in the American century. Um, so I, I'd love for you to sort of speak a little bit to his thinking on American foreign policy in that regard. Eber comes out of the Great War with uh, a deep sense of the violation of all norms of human not only human morality but but even the 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 tenuous bonds that that undergird all of human existence and he he recognized that his own work as uh for his denomination had in some sense supported the war so he he said i i'm becoming a pacifist i hope i can hold on to this and when he did that he was he was accepting what was the dominant form of christian belief among mainline denominations he was kind of joining the the main group of of american christians um so so that was a popular thing uh Niebuhr, of course managed to um to mess it up by uh by including joining the socialist party and that was not a popular thing but but that's that's a different thing. So we'll we'll bracket that. Um, he what what drives him? Uh, Niebuhr was raised in a German speaking household, and that meant that he was one of the few theologians in America for whom. German was a working language rather than something that you might read an article in and think that one had worked hard. So he was taken along on some trips to the um, to the to Germany, uh, post-war Germany after the Great War, and 
and and he was stunned at at the way that that German people, including children, were being treated, as seeing this as as a mark of vengeance rather than justice. That's that that's what motivated his shift to uh, a pacifist position. Of course, over time, he, he Niebuhr is constantly reading his entire life. He is constantly reading and studying and considering, and uh, and he starts to think. Wait, is pacifism legitimate when it is not an individual's decision? Is it legitimate at the societal level? Uh, and eventually he starts to realize that it is not. And in fact, he will even make the argument that even pacifist efforts at changing other people's behavior, and I'm thinking of something like the Gandhi strikes or, or other efforts like that, he said, but, but those, ha- those impact people's lives. They may not directly kill someone, but they impact people's lives. And any theologian has to pay attention to that. So he's already kind of turning this over in his mind when uh, when the Japanese attack China. Uh, and, and he and his brother, who, uh, H. Richard Niebuhr, get into a fight literally in the pages of Christian Century on uh, as to what the appropriate thing is to do. Reinhold believed that the appropriate thing was to uh, to be some form of an interventionist policy. Uh, H. Richard thought, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to sit back and let God's justice Roll down whatever God chooses. That's clearly what it what God was choosing. Um, they don't agree at all on this. Um, by by the start, um, by the start of the war, the, the Second World War, Niebuhr is fairly convinced of the necessity that societies will defend themselves. And especially against existential threats. And by the end of the war, he is a, a full throated supporter arguing that, um, that what he is seeing in Nazism is what he calls in the children of light and the children of darkness, uh, the, the manipulation of the human spirit by the children of darkness, that that they see nothing greater in the world than their own power, and and they act for it. Uh, and he believed, uh, and I, I I admit I'm enough of a realist that I think he was correct. Um, he believed that going to the Nazis and saying. Uh, I'm a pacifist, but you should be motivated by your uh, 
your astonishment at at the greatness of my humility was not a not even a it, it's not it's not just not a winning strategy it's not even a survivable strategy uh and and so so he he ends the war a fairly strong supporter of the war effort yeah. uh Following the war, at the dawn of the Cold War, he writes The Irony of American History. And there's a, there's a very interesting account of Gandhi in that book in which um, he explains that, that Gandhi is able to succeed not because he is an idealist, but because he understands the multifaceted nature of power and because he is dealing with a British government that is responsive to uh, levers of power that the Nazis would not be responsive to. Um, the irony of American history is about American, largely about American international relations um, and the ethical compromises that we have had to engage in, in pursuing both our interests and our ideals. Um, in some sense, the, the lesson there is the lesson we've already encountered, that purity is not going to be possible uh, in conducting a foreign policy, we are going to have to compromise. And the question becomes, how much must we compromise our ethics? Uh, how much would be too much? But the great irony of that book is in looking at the Cold War with uh, the Soviet Union, Niebuhr says, you know, we are concerned enough for justice that we seek to justify ourselves. And how do we justify ourselves? We justify ourselves by saying that we are fighting for freedom and democracy against godless materialist imperialism. And the irony is that we don't recognize that we too are godless and materialist and imperialists. And if we did, we would change our policy and we would be more circumspect in the way we wage the Cold War. Uh, more concerned for the justice of our uh, deeds uh, and even for the way we are perceived in the world. We take that lesson and apply it to uh, America's current situation. Um, we, for all of our students' lives, we have been engaged in a war against what? Um, religious fundamentalism theocratic Islam. Uh, uh, we say we are against those things. We point particular to the subjugation of women in some countries and say that's wrong. And uh, and it would be in keeping with, with Niebuhr's irony of American history to say, don't we recognize the irony here? We, we say we are against religious fundamentalism uh, at precisely the moment when religious fundamentalism is reasserting itself in American life. We say we are against theocratic rule at precisely the moment when uh, we pass legislation that requires people to live according to uh, the, uh, the religious understandings of one particular group. We say we are uh, um, we are fighting for the liberation of women uh, at at precisely the moment when we ourselves struggle with. Uh, with the very notion of the liberation of women and the place of women in American society. The international experience ought to hold up a mirror to our own domestic lives. That's what Niebuhr did in 
Cold War, and it's one of the things we try to do in the current book. And just to sort of take you through the the final chapter of the book, which is titled The Spirit of Liberalism in Theory and Practice, and you do an interesting job of weaving Madison and the Federalists back into some of the conversation with regard to Niebuhr in terms of understanding what what you and Niebuhr call the sort of liberal dilemma um, and and some of the discussion of the need for and problematic nature of the structure and spirit of liberalism. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of this kind of, it seems almost um, circular in both mm-hmm. problem and solution? Yes. And and Niebuhr was accused of that, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, here you are, this great Critic, you, Reinhold, this great critic of modernity, uh, this advocate for a return to a Christian understanding of uh, public life. Um, and yet, when you turn to America, what do you do? You endorse the, the modern American constitution rooted in enlightenment thinking. Um, you point to James Madison as one of the two great American uh, political thinkers and actors, statesmen along with Abraham Lincoln, um, uh, how can you possibly reconcile your critique of modernity and your embrace of the greatest exemplum of modernity, uh, the American political project? Um, uh, and it, uh, in that chapter, we, we try to sort out how Niebuhr can do that. Uh, and it, it comes to, uh, returns us to his uh, his human anthropology. Niebuhr made the argument um, that actually, if we were to read Madison, we should read Madison as uh, a Christian realist. Uh, In several places, goes um, into Madison's educational background, uh, his education at the hands of Reverend Witherspoon, that Niebuhr's argument is that was really Madison's outlook. Um, In other words, Madison was a Christian statesman. And uh, and what is it that Christianity um, teaches? Well, again, uh, the the first thing is uh, this original sin of pride. And uh, what is the American Constitution uh, but a way to correct for or account for that sin of pride? And therefore, a Christian would would not want a theocratic state. A Christian would want a state, according to Niebuhr, um, that embraced checks and balances and separation of powers. Because the Christian would recognize that uh, as a mere human being, I do not have all knowledge. I do not have all perspectives. Um, I am bound to do an injustice. And, and therefore, in order to correct for my deficiencies, I need a um, diversity or plurality of voices engaged in the political project. And that's what Madison did. Uh, so, so Niebuhr, uh, um, we argue, although he never made this quite explicit himself, um, Niebuhr is able at one and the same time to write as a critic of the errors of modern thinking about possibilities for perfection in politics. 
um, and at the same time to embrace the American Constitution and the American experiment as a Christian solution to uh, to the problems of pride and perfectionism. And so I'm just curious, since you have now written two books together on Reinhold Niebuhr, what you're each working on now. Well, I am uh, returning to my work on uh, John Locke. Um, and in some sense, the current project on Locke is an outgrowth of uh, this idea of Niebuhr in theory and practice. Uh, I'm uh, I'm especially interested in the way Locke addresses the problem of intellectualism in public life or the problem of uh of the philosopher in a political community. Uh, Locke tells us in his essay concerning human understanding that um, it is truth alone I seek and that he belongs to a commonwealth of learning. And I'm curious about the relationship between the commonwealth of learning, of philosophy, intellectualism, and the Lockean liberal commonwealth, the political community. So in a way, it's a return to um, uh, Locke's treatment of the problem that Plato identifies in the Republic, the relationship between the philosopher and, and, the, uh, city. and the city. Cool. Um, and Ward, what are you working on? A couple of small projects and then a big project. The small projects are very Niebuhrian. Um, it, Niebuhr, it, part of our love for Niebuhr is that he gives significant and sophisticated ways of thinking about how the religious person can be an actor in the public sphere. Uh, and, and that's a huge question right now. We've, we've got, uh, here's a great example um, of people like Robert Jeffers, who's the uh, senior pastor at First Baptist in Dallas, uh, he was he gave the uh, inauguration sermon at uh, Trump's inauguration. Uh, Franklin Graham, uh, people like this have been enormously supportive of Donald Trump throughout the past three years and saying uh, this is a person that is so worthy we need to look past any any small foibles. Uh, now those same people are not granting the same grace to a candidate like Pete Buttigieg, uh, an openly gay uh, Christian Episcopalian man. Um, what what do we make of this? Uh, obviously, we can say it's a, a matter of hypocrisy, but is there something deeper? And I believe there is. Uh, so I'm I'm working on on that and and ways that that Christians are working with. Um, well, with with the societies in which they find themselves, and uh, and then my bigger project is um, 
a return to the 16th century and trying to trying to figure out uh, how Calvin, uh, who is one of Niebuhr's big influences, how Calvin understood the theological tradition that he had received. Um, the, there's a lot of people who want to say, well, he just wrote, read the Bible, but uh, I'm pretty clear that's incorrect. And, and it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think it's the kind of thing that leads to the deeper understanding that allows us to understand someone like Reinhold Niebuhr trying to live in that space between his faith and his citizenship in the 20th century. So when you each complete these next books, will you come on the New Books Network and talk to me about them? Delighted. Thank you. Of course. It's my pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Peter Josephson and Ward Holder, authors of Reinhold Niebuhr in Theory and Practice, Christian Realism and Democracy in America in the 21st Century, published by Lexington Books in 2018. Where can somebody get a copy of this book? Probably the uh, the best place would be on the Lexington Books website uh, through Roman and Littlefield. It's available on Amazon. I have not seen it on any actual brick-and-mortar bookstore shelves. But okay, so we'll direct people to Lexington um, Books to purchase it if they would like it. Thank you both for joining me today to talk about your book, Reinhold Niebuhr in Theory and Practice. I really appreciate it. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Uh, My pleasure. <laughs>